Good morning, dear community. <clears throat> How did we sleep? Well, yeah. Yesterday, uh, after the closing circle, I felt a lot of happiness to get to sit in the circle. And also the body was saying to me, okay, that's enough now. We have to go lie down again. And uh, I tried some crackers to see if that would help settle and I guess kind of motivate <laughs> my gut to continue on its healing path. And uh, it made it very tired. So I was very still. I slept a lot yesterday evening. And I, I'm glad to see that people are nodding that you also got good rest. So um, there's another very beautiful question that I was happy to receive um, before the retreat from someone who I heard would be here through the weekend. So that's why I saved it for today to inspire the talk. So here's the question. I feel sad when I think about big trucks pouring carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and wild animals caught in a trap. Since I'm frustrated in trying to make any changes in the world, I have stopped being a social activist. So I am ignoring global warming and the suffering of wild animals. I am now focusing on developing peace within myself. Am I on the right path? This is a very real question for all of us, especially in the engaged Buddhist tradition, but all of us, even on the small issues in our family or in our own self, and we recognize the suffering, we recognize habits or trends or systems, patterns, and we, want, we see the suffering, we feel the suffering of them, and we want so much to make a change, and sometimes it just seems like we can't, we can't make it change. Uh, how do we relate with that? I found myself thinking about the um, the sutra on the sun's flesh on the the four kinds of food. You know, as Tai teaches us, I believe it's also from the Buddha's own teaching. Nothing can survive without food. Everything that is manifesting, we know it's the same. When we talk about causes and conditions, it's the food that that becomes something else. The food that fuels whatever is manifesting. So in the sutra, the Buddha describes four kinds of food that we ingest. The first one is edible food the food we take in through the mouth, we chew and swallow in our body. The second one is sense impressions. The six senses are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. So what we take in through our sense of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thought, the mind, the mind produces sense impressions on the mind. Uh, 
was remembering something that Mahatma Gandhi said. He said something like, I don't have the exact words, but something like, the greatest instrument of violence in the world is the fork, the dinner fork, because we mindlessly consume maybe whatever um, whatever tastes good to the tongue or whatever um, everyone else around us is eating and we know there can be a lot of violence in the way the food is made not only you know the obvious in the slaughterhouse but also the treatment of the people who are farming the food or raising the food or doing the slaughtering and that we bring the violence into our body and many of those foods not only energetically have violence, but even sort of physiologically. <clears throat> they, they can do violence and they make us sick. Um, I wonder though in the 21st century, or this year now, almost 2020, if, uh, if the most violent or the instrument of the greatest violence might not be the smartphone and Facebook. And I want to say here now, no one, we're not saying that the if the fork is like that or the smartphone and social media are like that, it doesn't mean that we put them down and we never again eat, we never again use the phone. That's not the message. It's just how are we relating with those things? And uh, these phones or the computers and the platforms it's so much, it's so much content, so much, um, so much food. It's like we're drinking from a fire hose, you know. And uh, like thinking about the, the drawing of the circle and all the seeds, it's, it's like a fire hose of fertilizer. There's so much coming. So it, I think it really calls upon us as practitioners to um, to really bring mindfulness and awareness to what's the what's the healthy kind and amount of food. Um, as I was saying yesterday, the phone and and the YouTube can bring us beautiful talks of Thai. Um, that Thai isn't giving those talks now, so those are a great great resource of healthy food. And it's also true that um, in the media business, it's a business, a lot of what's out there is there to make a profit for somebody. And they know that uh, we are evolutionarily hardwired to respond more strongly to negative stimuli, to stimuli things that touch the seeds in us of fear, of anxiety, of anger. It's like in psychological studies where they they measured the strength of people's responses. I think in one example they would um, have maybe some kind of game and where they sometimes lose a hundred dollars or sometimes gain a hundred dollars and the strength of the response for the equal amount of money but the response is stronger around the loss. And so we know this is even long before digital media, the news, the the business of news has known that people will click, people will buy more impulsively when it's something that scares them a little bit. Um, and that we know that has effects on how we 
that we water those seeds of fear and anxiety, that's the fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And how we, how we relate to our own life and our friends. So when our friend wrote, I am ignoring global warming and the suffering of wild animals, and we might think, oh, we are engaged Buddhists. That's not. That's not the right. That's not the right solution. But I want to say, are you sure? Because uh, it makes me think of an, a teaching of Ajahn Chah, the great Thai uh, forest tradition teacher, and he said um, he gave a talk. This is also a. Uh, reminiscent of a Zen story about the the dog having Buddha nature. So the master gave the teaching that uh, the dog has Buddha nature. And so then a student came in for the interview and um, he said, oh, I I know uh, the dog has Buddha nature. I got that. And the master said, no, no, a dog does not have Buddha nature. And so the student was confused and the, the master was trying to break him out of his grasping onto a teaching. And um, you know, we'd say the the teaching is the finger pointing at the moon. The moon is the insight, the the liberating insight. And if we get too caught in the finger, we lose the moon. And that's what the master was trying to say. So Ajahn Chah had, I think, a similar experience where um, he was teaching somebody something. And they said, well, that's not what you said in the talk the other day. And he said, look, you know, if I see somebody, it's like a car, a cart or a carriage is going down the road and it's going off too far into the left gutter, I'm going to say, go right, go right. And if I see someone who's too far in the right gutter, I say, go left, go left. So um, if, if we're in a place where we've taken in so much about the suffering and we're starting to become frustrated, I think that's a very interesting word, frustrated. For me, that word it has something in it of like repression, pressing down. Uh, it's like there's something, we feel the suffering, we feel the pain when we see the suffering of the planet, of the animals, and something wants to respond and do something. And then we hit that wall, right? The wall of the machine or the resistance or the system, the pattern. And then that, and then to me, that's what frustration is. It's like an impulse or an energy that wants to wants to go forward, to act, to act upon, and something is uh, putting on the brakes. And then that feeling of frustration. So maybe in that case. Maybe that's what we need to do, ignoring. It's a strong word, but maybe sometimes we need that, if we're quite far in the left gutter of uh, despair about all the things that are going wrong, maybe we have to go towards the other extreme and we call it ignoring. We do it with awareness. That's the key. And it, it also brought to my mind the story, a beautiful story that Tai tells <clears throat> when he was in his hermitage in Vietnam called Phung Boy, Fragrant Palm Leaves. And um, 
some of us had the chance when Thay went back to Vietnam to visit the land where Thay practiced there. It was so lovely to be in those fragrant palm leaves. The hut isn't there anymore, but we could walk those, walk on the land there and remember Thay practicing. Thay was also there. Um, so he talks about a day when he really wanted to have a picnic in the woods, in the, yeah, in the woods, the, the forest. And it was a bright sunny morning, and so he packed some things to eat. Maybe we have a bell. Respected the bellmaster. The bellmaster is over the teacher. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so he packed his lunch and took his blanket and went into the woods and was really enjoying the forest. Just looking at the beauty of the trees and the land, feeling the air. And over time, as he saw the sky, he saw some clouds starting to come and more clouds starting to come and uh, a storm. A storm was coming in, so he knew that he had to go back to his hermitage because he had left everything open. When he got up in the morning, he opened the windows, he opened the door, now he was out in the woods and the storm was coming. So he packed up his things and uh, walked mindfully quickly, I suppose, back to the hut. And the storm by this time was already blowing strongly. I don't know that the rain was coming down yet. But when he came into his hut, it was cold and his papers were scattered all over, blown all over the hut. And so he said, I had to first close the windows and close the door. And then I turned on the, the stove to heat. And then I gathered the papers and put them back in order. So when we feel like we've had too much of this hose coming in and blowing things around inside, we close. We close the windows, we close the door. And this is what, when we talk about being still and healing, there's a time to close, maybe in our sitting practice, in our retreat practice. We close the, uh, the escapes or the, um, the leaks, we could say, when we, When we haven't been as mindful, we haven't had as much concentration as we could have, and we see that our energy has been going more out than coming in. And so we stop, we practice the stopping. Yeah, I wanted to read just a few words from here about that that I really like. 
Mrs. Tai's wonderful book, The Heart of the Buddha's Teaching. Stopping, calming, and resting are preconditions for healing. If we cannot stop, the course of our destruction will just continue. The world needs healing. Individuals, communities, and nations need healing. So we have to stop. We have to stop. And I was remembering also the poem that somebody mentioned yesterday, Please Call Me By My True Names. We may know that. It's such a beloved work that Tai created for, for our world. And we might know the story of how it came into being that Tai was in Paris and uh, working, the, working for peace, working to bring an end to the Vietnam War. And that was a really uphill a really uphill uh, commitment and offering. So he received this heartbreaking report of a boat of refugees who were fleeing Vietnam were captured. It was captured by some pirates from Thailand. And one 12-year-old girl was raped by one of the pirates. And in her pain and distress afterwards, she threw herself off the boat and drowned herself. So Ty received that report, and as you can imagine, his heart felt so much pain. So he stopped. He came back to his hermitage. He closed the door and the windows, and he breathed. A long time, maybe all night long. And then the fruit of that practice was this poem expressing how every one of us is the girl and the pirate. Every one of us is the forest and the lumber company cutting it down. This is the the insight that we can that can give us the fuel to make the positive change. Mm. Sometimes I think about um, when there's conflict, inside of me or even between two people, like for example, Like sometimes people will say, uh, I have a friend who is very critical of me and says mean things to me. And sometimes I wonder if I'm too compassionate, if I'm too compassionate um, because I don't say mean things back. And the image that comes to me sometimes is that of a mother or a father, a parent who has two children and maybe one child is hitting the other child. And... uh, The parent loves both of them equally. But that doesn't stop them from, they know they need to separate. They need to stop what's happening. They need to separate them and 
then listen to the child who's hitting and understand and also listen to the one who's crying, being hit. So when we approach these kinds of uh, patterns where harm is being wrought and there's suffering, can we do it with the heart of compassion for both? So compassion doesn't mean we don't... uh, It doesn't mean we just let someone keep hitting someone. We can have compassion for the one who's hitting because we know that inside they're also suffering. That's why they're hitting. So the ones who are uh, pouring carbon dioxide into the atmosphere or trapping, they're also suffering. And someone might say, oh, they're not suffering. They seem perfectly content with what they're doing. Mm, But we know that like we were talking about yesterday, when when people are causing harm, even if they aren't very conscious of it, they're also taking in the harm that they're doing. So ignorance is not bliss. Only to a very shallow part of the mind is ignorance bliss, and it's really denial. Ignorance is suffering. Ignorance is not a, a healthy a healthy state. So when we close the door and the windows and take care of our own suffering, then we have the the strength and the love to listen deeply to the other one, the one who's causing the harm and understand them and try to, not try. We can, we can make the breakthrough, the insight, and find the way, the place where we can connect. We find the, we see the pathway through, the place where, where we can understand each other and we can expand from there, the understanding. Um, Understanding is so important. There's a story about uh, George Schaller, who was the primatologist, went to Africa, he was the mentor to Jane Goodall. And he, uh, I guess, pioneered these um, methods of understanding the primates, the chimpanzees, and got so much more insight into how they relate and their social complexity and their cognitive and emotional life. And he was asked, how have you been able to learn so much more about the lives of these beings than anyone else who came before you? And he said, I didn't carry a gun. So everyone else armed themselves and went in armed, and then the the chimpanzees, perhaps because they'd have some some experience with guns, they didn't let that person in close. They didn't, uh, they were naturally very much on their guard. But when someone came and could come without the gun, they got so much more understanding into the life of these beings. And so we, if we can take good care of our suffering, close the doors and windows when we need to, and restore, restore the strength of our heart 
and listen, really listen, make the room for our own suffering so it feels heard. And then we have the space to witness the suffering of the other one and to respond in a skillful way. Because maybe they're not even ready to say they have suffering. They might say, I'm perfectly fine. So we find the way to, to meet them. Just like Thai with the ancient teaching of the Buddha, and here we are, the 20th and 21st century, it seems like a completely different world, and yet there are these common themes that, that are at the heart of the human experience. And I love Thai for having been able to look so deeply into our culture, our modern culture, and found the way that, that the Buddhist teaching connects most usefully, in the most living way, with what's happening now. So we, we can do that. We can stop and look deeply inside and look deeply into the person across from us. And we see the connection. We see the communication that we can make, the skillful means. Very often, I find when um, when we feel the impulse and we try to do something, it's maybe that we're trying to do something a little too too quickly, and we haven't we haven't really listened inside, so that then the frustration can uh, can come across in our words, and uh, if we haven't taken good care of our own pain. When we speak, we can actually water the seed of pain and um, defensiveness in the other person. And um, this comes to these practices, the first eight practices we spoke about from the sutra on the full awareness of breathing. And sometimes, you know, Tai always talks about the interbeing of these things, the interbeing of the Four Noble Truths, that it's not just a linear progression, but they interpenetrate, and the same with the Eightfold Path. I think the same is also true of these exercises. So, for example, when we think about the, the trucks and the traps, the first thing we're noticing maybe not isn't our breath. The first thing we're noticing is that feeling of frustration or the feeling of anger, um, feeling of fear, feeling of sadness. And maybe that's where we start. We start and we pause and feel the feeling and let ourselves feel the feeling fully. So one uh, method that's been helpful to a lot of people for this is um, popularized by Tara Brock, and it's called RAIN. It stands for Recognize, Allow, Investigate, and Nurture. I think that acronym originally came from Michelle McDonald, a Vipassana insight teacher and Tara Brock has really developed it in a way that's helpful to people. So we recognize, in this case, the unpleasant feeling. And we can do it. Why don't we practice it right now? We can just kind of 
close our eyes and maybe bring to mind some situation that kind of triggers us and maybe not not a not a large traumatic memory or situation but something that brings up irritation that brings up sadness it could be the the thought about the trucks something about a family member something about our own health and as we maybe sort of play the movie or look at the sin, the scene and kind of pause in the place where the 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 hook the grab or the the sting of it feels strong and just recognize what the feeling is this is mindfulness of feelings mindfulness of mental formations just naming it acknowledging it and the a of allowing is that we don't we don't suppress it we don't try to fix it we don't carry the gun toward it we let it show us itself and let it take space in our mind with our mindfulness embracing it like we showed with the seeds so the mindfulness is there recognizing acknowledging the painful feeling just like the parent and the baby embracing <clears throat> and the eye of investigate it's not um it's not a mental analysis it's more like an exploration in the body so where what are the physical sensations and this is also in the the eight uh, steps of the sutra where do i feel this pain where do i feel this frustration or sadness in my body what does it feel like mindfulness of the body aching stabbing pulsing tensing squeezing and allowing the feeling to just be what it is and take the space we're not confining it we're not trying to fix it just notice if as we give it the space in our mindfulness the embrace of our compassion if it softens a little bit on its own if it loosens a little bit if it shifts maybe not in a short time maybe it needs more time but this quality of relating to it with allowing with compassion we can sense the quality of our own presence that we're bringing it and that's the nurturing the n we feel nurtured by our own action of this compassion can receive this is the good food from our own mind 
generating compassion for our feeling, for our body. And just as we feel ready, we can come back and open our eyes. So this is um, like the psychologist Carl Rogers said, this kind of paradox that when I accept myself just the way I am, then I can change. When we try to change, when we push the change or force the change, impose it without letting the feeling be felt, usually, you know, we say, what we resist persists. So when we can make the room for our own feelings, then we can make the room for the other, the other one. And that's when the transformation becomes possible. When they feel that we're really coming to them without a gun. When I was... Um, maybe you've heard of the Lion's Roar of Shariputra. It's a, one of the sutras, and it talks about one time when... Shariputra, a senior disciple of the Buddha, was accused by a fellow monk of acting inappropriately. And uh, Shariputra stood and said, um, I am like the earth. Whatever you pour on me, I, I can receive it. And it's, this, it's called his lion's roar because he, um, he felt this strong energy happening and he really responded with his whole being so um, for me I feel like the lion's roar of Thai is such a beautiful and sweet sentence um, but so profound and so it was in Vietnam uh, one of the trips back and we were all Thai was giving a talk to I don't know a thousand or more people and the monks and nuns were around Thai. We were on a large concrete kind of platform or balcony, and Thai was on his little podium. And all, it was in Vietnamese, of course, so all of us who were Western monastics, we were clustered around the translation box with our earphones listening to the translation. <clears throat> and it was the first time I heard Thai say, uh, I have been a monk for... I think he said at that time, 60 years or 65 years, I've been a monk. And what I have seen is that there is no religion, no philosophy, no ideology higher than brotherhood and sisterhood. I get a little bit of a goosebump when I think about it when he said that. This person who had given his whole life to the Buddhist spiritual tradition, studying it, teaching it. And he said, there's no religion, no philosophy higher than brotherhood and sisterhood. So 
if we are receiving so much information about the painful things going on and we lose contact with the brotherhood and the sisterhood that's expressed in that poem, please call me by my true names, then we need to stop and we need to take care and yeah, develop peace. And um, I wonder, has anyone here heard of um, a social activist named Valerie Carr? Anyone heard of her? She's uh, an American Sikh, S-I-K-H, practitioner. She tells an amazing story about her own family. Her grandfather came to America as an immigrant, a Sikh immigrant in the early 1900s. And he was wearing the turban, and the Sikh, they wear the turban. So he arrived in California and was immediately put in a jail cell because he looked... Somehow he didn't look like what they thought they wanted to bring into America. And he languished in that jail cell for months until an American lawyer took up his cause and filed a writ of habeas corpus and got him released from the jail. And kind of fast forwarding some decades later, after the events of 9-11, Valerie Cowher's um, dear sort of uncle, not a blood uncle, but an uncle in her family, like a beloved friend, she says was one of maybe the first hate crime victim um, after the attacks, he was Sikh, and I think it was in Arizona or New Mexico, he had a, like a roadside shop, gas station, and he was attacked and killed. And Valerie Carr um, decided to study law, and she's, she's a social activist and a lawyer and also a mother. And she gave this talk at the New Year's um, celebration in, I believe it was a Baptist church. Very powerful, like her lion's roar. And um, she said, this was, uh, I, think, I think it was 2016, 2017, I think it was that New Year's. So she said, we see all this darkness, and what if it's not the darkness of the tomb? What if it's the darkness of the womb? The darkness of the womb. And these great people like our teacher Thay, or like the Dalai Lama, Martin Luther King, Bishop Tutu, Nelson Mandela, they became, they became what they are because they went through deep, deep suffering and violence. They were right, you know, what Ty calls the flame at the tip of the candle. They were right there. And somehow they were able to call on those resources and take enough care of themselves with their spiritual food, with the food of their friends, of their family, whatever they drew on. They were able to meet that and this incredible fruit that all of us can eat and use in our own struggles to meet the things that seem so daunting, that seem so murderous, that seem so violent, that are. Uh, that's the birthing. The, 
there's a birthing that comes from that that encounter of the the energy the of the the Buddha nature of the Dharma of the Sangha meeting the pain that's right there. So that's us. That's us that we are the ones now with the food from our ancestors, our our spiritual ancestors, our blood, our land ancestors. And so uh, Valerie Kaur says, when when uh, a woman is giving birth, there are two things that, that they're calling on her to do. The first one is breathe. And then the second one is push. And if we... If we do too much pushing and not enough breathing, we can hurt ourselves and maybe hurt the baby, right? If we force and force, and that's how we get in that place. So we have to breathe. We have to know when to close the doors and the window and take care. And then from there, we the action comes, the right action, right? The beneficial action, the one that brings liberation, that brings love that brings connection, that brings brotherhood and sisterhood and also reflects it. Uh, So there's also a beautiful passage, again in this book, The Heart of the Buddha's Teaching, that I'd like to share from Tai, because it's so so eloquent on these points. And I will make reference in here to anxiety, but maybe if for you it's more about rage or more about sadness, and you can substitute the word that's really alive for you. <clears throat> Someone asked me, aren't you worried about the state of the world? I allowed myself to breathe. And then I said... What is most important is not to allow your anxiety about what happens in the world to fill your heart. If your heart is filled with anxiety, you will get sick and you will not be able to help. There are wars, big and small, in many places, and that can cause us to lose our peace. Anxiety is the illness of our age. We worry about ourselves, our family, our friends, our work, and the state of the world. If we allow worry to fill our hearts, sooner or later we will get sick. Yes, there is tremendous suffering all over the world, but knowing this need not paralyze us. If we practice mindful breathing, mindful walking, mindful sitting, and working in mindfulness, we try our best to help, and we can have peace in our heart. Worrying does not accomplish anything. Even if you worry 20 times more, it will not change the situation of the world. In fact, your anxiety will only make things worse. Even though things are not as we would like, we can still be content. We can still be content knowing we are trying our best and will continue to do so. If we don't know how to breathe, smile, and live every moment of our life deeply, 
we will never be able to help anyone. I am happy in the present moment. I do not ask for anything else. I do not expect any additional happiness or conditions that will bring about more happiness. The most important practice is aimlessness, not running after things, not grasping. We who have been fortunate enough to encounter the practice of mindfulness have a responsibility to bring peace and joy into our own lives, even though not everything in our body, mind, or environment is exactly as we would like. Without happiness, we cannot be a refuge for others. Ask yourself, what am I waiting for to make me happy? Why am I not happy right now? practice of a pranahita, aimlessness, is the practice of freedom. We have three sounds. Thank you for listening.